I do have one topic we could warm up with before we start. Oh, did oh. you see the Poculus chip? The Poculus it's chip, three D VR for everyone for only forty nine dollars. That's my kind of price. I, I can't. I can't really. I can't really. I can't. I just. You know what? I can't. Don't By you the love way, this picture headset not included. Some three D printing required. <laughs> yeah. So there's a there's a picture of the pocket smacked up to this thing, and there's even a video. Although. Uh, this uh, combined emulator package so that we can get Virtual Boy running on pocket chip. So you're familiar with the pocket chip device, right? The thing's awesome. Yeah. And then they, they came up with a 3D printed VR headset that goes over the pocket on, chip screen. And it, oh, yeah. Uh, this is awesome. Virtual Boy Games in 3D. Look at that. <laughs> it's actually kind of cool. It is kind of cool. <laughs> I don't know that I'm about to buy one yeah. or make one, but it is cool. You know, if I had the pocket, I might. That the, If I had the pocket chip thing, that is actually so cool. Do you remember how red it was? Yeah, I know, right? Oh, man. Bring back the the original VR. It's 3D! <laughs> it, actually, it actually is. It really works. It's amazing. <laughs> yeah. There's like 30 Virtual Boy games. <laughs> yeah. That's Waterworld. Kevin Costner's Waterworld. Oh. <laughs> Boy, I haven't thought about Waterworld for ages. This is Linux Unplugged, episode 154 for July 19th, 2016. Welcome to Linux Unplugged, your weekly Linux talk show that's on the ground and reporting from the Linux trenches. My name is Chris. My name is Wes. Hello, Wes. Hello, sir. Big show today for 154. Huge. It's something we do just for all 154 editions right? of oh, our it's podcast. Very special. We just do big shows. That's what we do. It's Huge. tradition. Coming up on this week's episode of the show, there's a big, big release coming out for Linux. We'll give you the details on that. It was actually crowdfunded, which is pretty neat. We got some follow up on some stories we covered last week. There's some shenanigans going going on that I think may just tip snaps over the top. What? Yeah, we'll tell you about that, why snaps will dominate. <laughs> and then later up, later on the show, I'm going to do a little follow-up on my VPN efforts, what I landed on, and then we'll get into a discussion about self-hosting. Oh. And uh, it's actually kind of an interesting discussion because Wes has a little angle on there that we'll talk about as well. And then later on in the show, towards the end, I think this one will probably get the virtual lug going the most. Do you use the Linux desktop for idealistic or practical reasons? And what brought you here and what keeps you? We'll talk about that coming up towards the end of the show. But before all of that stuff, we got a bunch of open source project updates to get into, like we do in every single Unplugged show. Lots of stuff from projects we're following every single week that we want to tell you about. News items, things that impact Linux users, things that are virtual lug could dig into. So why don't we start there? Speaking of that, let's bring in that lug. Time appropriate greetings, virtual lug. Hello. 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 It is good to see you. So I, let's start with a story that's been grabbing attention all week long. I didn't cover it in last, but I thought, you know, by now everybody's seen it. It's the elephant in the room. Microsoft is blocking Linux installations on old hardware. Dun, dun, dun. So, Wes, if I'm uh, grokking this uh, story correctly, an update went out to the now essentially defunct Windows RT yep. that closed essentially a backdoor that you could use to install alternative operating systems on the Windows RT tablet. 
Am I am I following this? Yeah, that's what it sounds like. So like on Microsoft's way out the door, they're like, "All right, well, thanks for buying that hardware. Now that we're done with it, install this update." And then you install that update, and you're hosed. Then you never have any fun again. And it was something Microsoft had known about the entire time. It was something they seemed to intentionally left had uh, left open. And then they're like, "Ah, see ya." Right. Thanks for all it's, the. It seems just. Fish. What's the benefit to that? I mean, I could see them have done it the first right. That's what they were going to do. They're going to be like, "Hey, locked it down." Not on our ARM platforms, no. It's, you know, secure boot all the way, no key, new keys, But no when you're anything. abandoning a platform, when you're like, yeah. ah, sorry, you made the wrong choice. See ya. That seems like the last thing you should do is make it basically unusable for anything useful after that. Yeah. Um, and and I, must have been, I wonder if there was like um, enterprise pressure or some, some thing that's like they're, they're, they were actually using that platform. Yeah, that's a great question. Are they going to continue to support it? So therefore, they're trying to reduce the surface area of mm-hmm. problems. Uh-huh. Get it? Surface area of problems. Especially if this has like become more known or something. You know, where it's like, well, we really can't. Maybe we're not meeting the contracts, or like we hmm. said that this was a secure tablet or whatever. But like WW saying, you you, you get the sense that uh, this is sort of Microsoft uh, of yesteryear, right? WW. Yeah, kind of like, hey, you know, thanks for all the money. Now you get no support or, or or nothing on this, or you know maybe 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 we'll support Linux. You know we got this Azure thing. You know, yeah. I think what WW is saying there is why it got so much traction is, hey, what happened to Harding Linux? Yeah, exactly. What happened to Emoji Heart? What happened? Because really, this just goes to block Linux. I mean, anything that's going to be used at scale would be Linux installations, yeah. and uh, the fact people talk about it here uh, that. Uh, there is actually a couple of popular installations on RT tablets. So I guess if you want to install Linux on an RT tablet, don't install the latest update. Yeah. Which is sort of uh, – I, I, I don't feel like this one story is a clear indicator of Microsoft as a whole's intention towards Linux. Right. And it's not important enough of a platform to really reflect their core values probably. Right. You know what would, you know what would, really, you know what would really sell it for me? What's that? Is it called the Surface Book? That really crazy expensive? Yes. Uh, if, and I know this would never happen. But man, you know what would shut me up immediately about Microsoft and how much they support Linux? If they shipped a version of that with Ubuntu LTS. That would be crazy. Right? And had maybe – and let's just – since it's Microsoft, we'll just give on a few things. The web browser is pre-configured to use Bing. Yep. Oh, naturally. Uh, you got Skype for Linux installed. I heard you can use Etsy scale for that, Chris. <laughs> nice one, dude. Uh, also, you have like uh, Visual Studio Code pre-installed. You know, so you have like the Microsoft yep. Linux tool sets preloaded. Ready to uh, dev.net right on your uh, oh Ubuntu. God. Oh, man. <laughs> Then I would be then I would be really like, okay, this clear indicator. Um I I guess I, I'd like to hear from you, Minnie. What do you think? Do you, do you do you think this is an indicator of Microsoft's overall intention or perhaps this is just a bug fix gone wrong? I mean you can't blame Microsoft for fixing a bug. A big step would be to open the UEFI devices on the DSRT devices. So anyone who wants to install Linux can install it, but just fix a bug is what Microsoft has to do. Oh, I kind of like Landrash's theory, though. Landrash, go ahead. You have a theory that maybe this is sort of a competitive move. Well, it's good practice not to have competition against your own product. And if you you disable the ability to install Linux... Uh, maybe people be more encouraged to buy newer hardware because they're not getting the same value. Wouldn't those just be pissed off customers that just wouldn't buy another Surface? 
well, you'll have a few pissed off customers, but a lot of paying customers. Mm, yeah. Okay. That's I true. guess that's better than none, huh? It's just such weird timing. Yeah. It's like if they'd done it around, I don't know, it, if they'd done it earlier, if they'd done it from the start, like they kind of said that they were going to. Yeah. You know, uh, API in the chat room has pointed out, and we just did some coverage over the last couple episodes of TechSnap. There is a 20-year-old printer spooler bug in Windows that is exploitable remotely. And it's just, oh, it's really man. something. And that is, so that's, we covered that in the last two weeks because it's, it's a story that evolved in TechSnap. And then the week before that, we talked about a group policy disaster that... Network, oh, yeah, that was an interesting story. Yeah, it turned off group policy network-wide. I mean, just, Windows is, yeah, it's time to ship Ubuntu on that uh, on that uh, Surface book. So speaking of things that are shipping, maybe this is why they are worried about Linux. There is a game that you may have heard of. You may even have you may even have fond memory, memories of System Shock, which is a game that came out damn near, I don't know, 23 years ago now. It's a AAA title, and after two decades, Night Dive Studios is rebooting and reimagining the original System Shock with a new game that they say is true to the classic experience, and I've read some reviews oh. that say it is. And I hadn't talked about this before because it was a Kickstarter, and it wasn't... It was one of those where they sort of teased Linux support, yeah, right. and they didn't promise Linux support. We've been burned there before. Yeah. And so here's a little bit of the Kickstarter. I'll play a little bit of this for you so you kind of get a feel. They're, they seem like a pretty fun bunch. Where it all began, it says. used to love to play outside with all the other children until the incident. It was like night and day. After he started playing that classic cyberpunk horror video game system shock, he simply lost touch with reality. So this is uh, – it's a really fun parody video and uh, in it they say – well, you, you know, they talk about re reimagining this game and they say how – they talk and they just talk and talk and talk about how much they love this old game and they promised a Linux version if they got to a certain amount and the Linux community said, great, prove it. We're not just going to maybe kick in and have you not reach your end goal. So today, the guys behind System Shock, Shock and Gals – said, all right, well, we will prove it. We will ship a Linux demo to prove to you that we can hit the export button in Unity and make a Linux version. So they shipped that today. I downloaded it from GOG.com. It's free. I think you can also get it on Steam. And uh, it is freaking great, dude. So this is uh, this is a video of the this trailer here. It's awesome. It is awesome. The comms are dead and they're It has a very cool vibe to it. Mm-hmm. And uh, I tell you what, the, the the game is so damn great that I think I'm going to go back at the uh, the project after uh, after the show. So they're uh, they're they're almost there now to get to get Linux support. They've proved that they can hit the export button, so I think that's probably worth backing them. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, they now here's what they say. Uh, they said due to popular demand, they put up the Linux demo. Uh, we're doing this before we hit the stretch goal as a gesture of good faith, but understand that the Linux demo does not guarantee a Linux version of the final game unless we hit the stretch goal. It took quite a bit of time to get it all working on Linux, as well as a bit of internal testing. I like that. Ooh. Oh, internal. Huh? A bit, huh? Mm. A bit of internal testing. Sounds like more than a bit. Launching on other platforms takes time to adequately support and deploy, which is why we have a stretch goal and it is vital. Okay. And they so also how far t- away are we from that stretch goal right now? Uh, they talk also, by the way, they talk about how you have to install libsdl2 for the audio to work oh, correctly. I see. Uh, let's see. If I recall something, it's like they're like they're like fifteen thousand away from it right now, or sixteen thousand away from it. But I 
they don't they don't just come right out and say in the post how much money they need. They have like this graphic here you have to follow. But uh, from what the tech tree, yeah, from the breakdown, I have. In fact, uh, I think Liam has over on GamingOnLinux.com. He even breaks it down too. He says, uh, yeah, it needs to get around sixty three thousand to hit the uh, stretch goal, and uh, right now it is at uh, uh, oh. Oh, it needs another 63,000. That's what it is. It needs another 63,000. So there you go. Well, Linux gamers out there, yeah. see what we can do. Yeah. Actually, I think they're going to make it. I think they hit a million, so I think they're going to make it now. So I think that's going to be awesome. I, I look forward to it. And the, you, the great thing about the demo is if you just want to play around, it's free, and it's hosted right up on GOG.com for direct download. Wow. Yeah. That is a very good good faith effort. And it's nice after being burned by – look at that Look at that screenshot there, Wes, with the, with the planetary rings out the window – Holy Ooh, smokes, that my looks My heart cool. is a flutter. Yeah, and it's nice to have to get burned by Kickstarter a few I times. Yeah, to see that. So anyways, uh, the System Shock demo is out. I downloaded it on my machine upstairs. I did have a little audio problems, a little audio glitch. Okay. I heard sounds, but they were still like this. Yeah. So not quite there. No, not quite there yet. Their first stretch goal was 1.1 million. Okay, and they're at 1 million right now. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, They don't make it super obvious because it's all like in that graphic. And I think I'll probably back him after the show just because uh, I would probably buy that game on Steam anyways after it comes yeah, out. Right. And if they're so damn close, I wouldn't mind pushing them over. Yeah, okay. So I'll, uh, Cyber Seal in the chat room says it is available on Steam as well for free. Oh, nice. So you can get that. Speaking of something else you could try out for free, that'd be DigitalOcean. In fact, if you use our promo code D-O-Unplugged, all one word, and that's lowercase, you can get a $10 credit over at DigitalOcean.com, a simple cloud hosting provider. Dedicated to offering the most intuitive and easy way for you to spin up your own rig on their super badass infrastructure. SSDs, top to bottom, 40 gigabit E connection to the hypervisor. The hypervisor is KVM running on Did top you of say Linux. 40 gigabit? Oh, son! Wow. Yeah, you can tell too. Like when you're downloading software, one of the other things they do that I just love is they have a private networking option that goes over their own internal networking, doesn't count against your transfer. It's a great way to proxy connections to machines behind you, or if you need to set up something to do like file storage. It's awesome. They have snapshots and backups that make taking point-in-time snapshots of your machine before you go cray-cray super easy. The straightforward API makes that all super automatable. But let me tell you something, girl, that that interface. Oh, that interface is nice. The way that they've been able to evolve it, too, and not add unnecessary complexity or buttons, it's really something the KDE project should look at. Go over, use the promo code DOUNPLUGGED, you'll get a $10 credit, and in less than 55 seconds, you can get your own DigitalOcean rig spun up. They have Ubuntu LTSs, of course. In fact, even when it's a non-LTS release, they have the most current version in there. They got FreeBSD, Fedora, Debian, CoreOS, and CentOS. CoreOS has a pretty awesome concept. Have you played around with it? I know yeah, you're a container guy. It but, is pretty cool, yeah. But you just, you're just a straight-up like LTS with LXDE. You don't need no... Sp- Core OS, right? I do think it's a pretty cool project, though. It is super cool. It's very interesting, and I appreciate how much like diversity and other tooling and kind mm-hmm. of different take they've they brought to the Docker ecosystem. And yeah, like with Rocket, and yeah, mm-hmm. uh, and plus they're just super. Good. They're super super sound voices in that space. Yeah, they have it, a lot of good engineers bringing a lot of like um, etcd is really cool. Yes, like a lot of really good software for uh, distributed configuration. Exactly. And DigitalOcean, which is really cool, is they work right upstream with CoreOS. So that way you, you they're in one of the release channels. They get official updates from CoreOS. And by the way, they just launched their new block storage where you can attach up to 16 terabytes of SSD storage. Whoa. <laughs> Whoa. DO unplugged when you check out. Or actually, what you do, it's not when you check out. It's in the account. You go when you're doing your payment area. You just apply it, and you get a $10 credit, and you can run that. You can run a rig for a while. DO unplugged, and a big thank you to DigitalOcean for sponsoring the Unplugged program. 
I want to do a little bit of follow-up because I realize not everyone watches Linux Action Show that watches this show, and I've been getting a lot of tweets about this still. Or I'm not, not, not tweets, emails. Uh, I wish I was getting tweets. Jeez Louise. At Chris LAS. Telling you, if, if you don't hear from me an email, you, you ping me on Twitter, you might get me. Um, but just don't, t- don't tweet me, ask me to read your email. That never makes sense. So this bug has uh, bit me, and I talked a little bit about it last week. The uh, update to 4.64. It drove you it, off of what was otherwise a pretty Fedora, good yeah. operating system. Yeah, it turns out there was a, a microcode bug in that package, and because of that, the kernel update fails. After, after you do the update, the microcode package fails to update, and it doesn't boot. Major bummer, and it's been ha- it's been hitting people with Skylake machines. So I just want to do a quick follow up. I right here I have linked in the show notes the Fedora bug where they're tracking it. There is a kind of a workaround you could do if this particular issue's hit you. I've heard from a few people that where they have, and I said this on the show, Wes, and I just want to sort of double down on the statement here. But Skylake has been a major disappointment it for really me. Really has been, you know, especially since we've like we've talked about it. You hear a lot about just how good Intel is at working with the kernel, supposedly, and, right? right. But it seems to have been a major pain point, especially since it was kind of like it seemed like a an architecture they were kind of excited for as a company. And we've heard a lot about new Skylake laptops and yep, yep. And I remember when when sixteen oh four came out, um, they uh, they had that graphics flashing issue, and it bit Michael Dominic, and he ended up bailing. He ended up bailing from it. Oh wow. Yeah, and that was sort of like – it was a moment where I was like, okay, so there's one user lost. But all right, all right. Okay, sorry. Sorry, Michael. It's really – I promise it's better next time you try it. I want to talk about something really quickly uh, that I thought was an interesting development. And I, it really kind of came to my attention when I saw a, a tweet this week that uh, – see, do I have the tweet up here? Uh, yeah, here it is. In other news, your Chrome browsing data will soon be used for ad tailoring. Time to act surprised, I guess. And this is something that you don't even really know about until you go in to review your Google account settings. And I noticed Google was prompting me to review my account settings yeah. recently. I was like, why is it? And I went in there. I didn't see anything. Cause it's not obvious. I didn't read the fine print. Right. But if you read the fine print, it says, when you use Google services like Search and YouTube, you generate data, things like what you've searched for and videos you've watched. You can find and control that data in my account under the web and app activity setting. With this change, this setting may also include browsing data from Chrome and activity from sites and apps that partner with Google, including those that show ads from Google, which is a – I mean just that whole – apps that partner with Google. That's probably apps that use the Google sign-in and apps that use yep. advertising. Holy jeez. It makes me wonder about like you know when will this present like a conflict of interest for like oh, extension please. developers I mean, or like a big enterprise where suddenly – I mean we already knew like everything you – you know, you type in that little bar, it's getting sent to their servers. But yeah, I use Chrome at work, and I can consider so, security policies that would be less than happy about right, that. Right, yeah. You know, I, that's a good point. I was sniffing around trying to get a sense of what it is that Chrome is sending back to Google that they will use for advertising. This is probably not a complete list, but here's some of the things, and I put these in the show notes that I came across. People who sign into Chrome, then you are opted into this. Mm-hmm. People who use opt-out services, like use a web service to help resolve navigation errors, use prediction service to help complete searches, you know, that search thing that gets you uh, using a prediction service to load pages more quickly automatically reporting details of possibly possible insecure pages to Google protecting your site and devices from dangerous sites if you you know when you get that pop up that says right. the site might be dangerous automatically sending uses and, and crash reports to Google all, opting into all of those things they will use that data based on they will use that data for advertising and this is so obvious <laughs> right 
I mean, like, yeah. I mean, I can't That's even. I can't even. Thing. I can't even vein that I'm surprised. I, I, I can't. But it's so disappointing. It's so freaking disappointing. And and what it shows you is this was and this this was the end goal all along. Right. This is why they they launched a web browser to have a say in web standards and to do this very exactly. Thing. This is why an advertising company creates a web browser. Yep. And I, I, I kind of had a sense of what was going on because I noticed things that I had typed in Chrome were showing up in my Google Now cards. So I had a sense oh, yeah, that absolutely. they were parsing and that. And sometimes it's nice. I'll say Google yep. Now has shown me some stories yep. I wanted to see. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Uh, a, but they're just not so public about it. But with that news combined with this neat script that came out this week, I'm thinking about making a change. Oh. It's not a dramatic change, but one of the things that's prevented me from trying out Vivaldi – We've talked to the developers on this show. I've done a quick take on it before. But at the end of the day, Wes, I'm not going to lie. I do like to be able to watch Netflix sometimes. You have Star Trek to watch, you know? You, you nailed it. And so that's why I'm super excited about this new script that enables playback in Vivaldi and other Chromium-based web browsers, including Chromium itself. <laughs> so this is super nice. A Vivaldi project guy has managed to create a handy script that allow you to do this. And I've linked it in the show notes. I've tried it out. It does work. It's just a, it's a gist that you download. Uh, it's also in the AUR. And one of the neat things about the AUR version is they have a Vivaldi-specific one, and then they have a Chromium-specific one that nice. works for Vivaldi and all of them. And the Vivaldi-specific one has less dependencies. The, uh, the Chromium-based one downloads like 150 megabytes of packages, which took forever on my MiFi connection. But I'll tell you what. At the end of it, I was able to watch Netflix in Vivaldi, and I can install some of the same Chrome extensions that I kind of need That's to do the, the show notes. So I, and you know what else? In my limited use, it felt like it loads faster. The other thing I like about it is it, ha- it has better um, display of page loading. Like I have bar that has – it tells you your transfer rate of how oh, fast see, the web nice. page is yeah. downloading, sort of like old web browsers used to. And each tab has progress indicators. It feels a little faster. It does. You know, and I did enjoy using it. I had it on my laptop for a while when we first talked about it. And it's definitely not a bad browser. And they've recently uh, introduced something that I know you have bolted onto Chrome in their latest version of Vivaldi, if I'm saying that right, is um, tab hibernation. Yeah, definitely. And I don't, I don't use it myself, but my understanding of tab hibernation is that it has an ability to sense how long a tab has been inactive. And once it reaches that threshold, it essentially – pauses anything on that like it doesn't render that page anymore am i am i yeah you know i don't know the exact implementations of the vivaldi version but the uh the great suspender is the extension i use in chrome and yeah it'll just uh basically changes the url to the url of the extension plus the page you were on and then you click like so the extension basically takes over the, the tab using much less memory than you know a full rendered dom page and all that and then you just give it a click and then it the extension then just reloads the page that was there. So if there's any animation of any kind or anything like that, I'll pause this. You know, it doesn't preserve state. Uh, it just preserves, ah. like, where you, what page it was. What, and, and that's good, I suppose, if you had a lot of tabs? Yes. Yeah, mm. well, exactly. Or, like, you know, like, um, you're doing some research for the show, perhaps, and there's a lot of times where it's like, well, I have a whole stack of tabs, and maybe I need 10 of them right now, but I'm going to do the next one 30 minutes later, especially if you're so on a laptop and, on the go. So you're releasing probably way more than half the RAM each one of those tabs takes at that point. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I would. did you know, so when it does that, does it also unload all of the extensions? Because, you know, each instance of that's the extension. question. I guess, I don't, I don't know. Anyways, that's interesting. And they've built it into Vivaldi, yeah. which is kind of compelling from a, from a laptop battery saving standpoint. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I think over the next week, I'm going to transition to that browser and see how it works for me. I have it loaded upstairs on my machine already. Oh, awesome. 
And uh, I did the uh, Chromium uh, uh, script that allowed me to install Netflix for all Chromium-based uh, browsers. It and looks like a pretty reasonable script here, too. Like, it's, I mean, it's only yeah. 100 lines long. You can easily yeah. parse it yes. yourself. It's so. not crazy. Yeah. It's, it's not crazy. And it's it was made by one of the team members to just enable it because this was a total thing that they needed fixed on their browser. And it seems like a pretty good, like, um, good fit. You know, they didn't just bake it into theirs mm-hmm. and, and not yeah, share it with a, the community. It's like... Uh, that's kind of a nice guy thing. Yeah, definitely. So, you know, what they do is they take Chromium and they, and they rebase off of Chromium. And in some cases, they've done... They've walked this line of... It feels like they look at the Chrome extension market and they go... Well, those four things are a really good idea. Let's bake that in. And I don't know exactly if they re-implement it or if they work with those authors or what, but they've managed to do it in such a way that the UI still seems very responsive. The browser seems really responsive. And it's for me, it's easier to navigate than Chrome itself in terms of settings. Uh, so you click on the Vivaldi menu and you just have a traditional file, edit, view, tools mm-hmm. menu instead of a hamburger and when you click on settings, you can change this. It can be a tab. But a separate dialog with uh, with hierarchical settings comes up that is much easier to navigate than, than Chrome's huge, long huge. list of settings. That, yeah. And you always have to click advanced to get the things you really want anyways. So the, the that stuff, they've managed to simplify that those experiences in Chrome. It appears to use less resources while giving me mm. more information and automatically including some of the extensions I want. And now also I can play Netflix. And, it's, and for me, because Firefox just hasn't worked in the past – I'm thinking this could be a good potential. It is nice to at least, I mean, even if it's not crazy different, you know, uh, a broader market's not a bad Here's thing. the other thing I like, Wes. You're right. Because, and, you know, because did you hear that Opera just got yeah, bought Yeah, I know. Yeah. I was so about that, to say. Here's the other thing I like, Wes, though, is they have done a good job of outreach to the Linux community. You know, they've, they've, they've exchanged emails with this show. They have gone out of their way to, like, notify Linux news publications of things that are applicable to mm-hmm. Linux users. So they seem to want the Linux user base, too, which is, I think, a good sign. <laughs> yeah, we, uh, we don't get that from a lot of people. Oh, and Agogo also points out something that's kind of neat is uh, it can in- interpret theme color, uh, the meta tag. And so depending on the page you're on, the window uh, Chrome can change to match, sort of like Chrome does on the Android. Yeah, right. On the Android. The Android version of Chrome does when you're on a web page. Like if you're on a green page, the title bar turns green. It all kind of matches or whatever. Vivaldi does that as well. Vivaldi also has a dark theme right out of the box, which I like a lot. It starts with a light theme but has a dark theme. So uh, my quick take on it is impressed from like the two hours I played with it again this morning after it's been you know months. And uh, I, I think I'm going to put it on all my machines for a while. I just don't – I don't know what the sync situation is on that, but I'll figure it yeah, out. I'll yeah. play with it and let yeah. you know. So I want to shift gears for a moment. You guys know I got a, I got a soapbox on the show and I, I almost have That's to avoid – you have the show. I literally I, – I swear, guys, I promise you, I try not to make this a topic every single week. But it, it is such an epidemic in the Linux ecosystem that I, I sometimes – I just can't help myself. This Sunday, I kind of got on uh, – or no, it was last unplugged. I kind of got on SJVN's case for saying that Linux Mint was the best desktop ever. You remember me? I got into the best desktop ever. I said, come on. Is that true? Is I that got really into the true? whole thing about what does best even mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is yeah. that a phrase that you can stand behind? Right. And, it, and, you know, he said in 25 years, the best Linux I ever used. And then I took a look at it and I said, well, what about these issues? And I, I laid them out on Sunday's show. And I would argue those, don't, those, those issues I raised do not make it the best Linux ever. It may be the best for certain work cases or certain scenarios or a very good option would be a reasonable yeah, way to yeah, put that. totally. So this next one really got my attention. It was published today by SJVN. 
It's the best Linux laptop, everybody. Oh, yeah, that's right. The XPS 13 is the best Linux laptop about ever. Make no mistake about it. The 2016 Dell XPS 13 Developer Edition laptop is wonderful. It's fast. The display is gorgeous. And it's less than three pounds. But, oh, that price tag. It's the best laptop ever, Wes. And then, you know, as somebody – what do I got? Hey, Wes. Um, hey, Wes, what is this right here? What is, what is this? What, what is this right here? Why, that looks like an XPS 13. Yeah, this right here in my hands mm, is the Dell XPS that's 13. That's the best lap Linux laptop right there? Let me there? tell you, Wes. Let me tell you. So, wow. I don't, I, don't, I don't even need to be the one to tell you about a stout. I think it's a fine laptop, and I don't, I, I, I don't discourage anyone from picking one up. Uh, but here's, I, I think about it all the time. I'll admit that right now. Here's the things that Stephen J himself says are an issue. But then still says it's the best Linux laptop ever. So the display is great. I love it. But it's only 13 inches, and it is legitimately kind of small and cramped when you get a 4K version. It's almost unreadable. And there's an oddity that really makes it stand out. They stick the webcam down in the bottom left corner of the display, and he goes on to say it doesn't really matter that much. It, it is awful. I've seen a lot of other people complain a fair bit about it. I don't it. ever use it. Yeah. I never use it. It looks so bad. Also... Uh, he admits here, it's limited to only 16 gigs of RAM. Now, that might be fine absolutely for like a VI workflow or a, or a, or a, or a Emacs workflow. Right. If you're a if Java you're dev or, or virtualization, yeah. you know, you need to run different instances to test stuff. You need more than 16 gigs of RAM. Especially if you're getting that from work or something who will, who's willing to pay for it. And you're just like, well, no, right. that's the max. Doesn't disqualify it. But I think it raises the question, does it make it the best? Especially uh, when you think like you see those ThinkPads that Noah's buying or right, other things where it's like right. it might not be as pretty, but it here's has the other thing. Does the absolute best Linux laptop for twenty sixteen ship with an OS that launched in twenty fourteen? Because it ships with Ubuntu fourteen oh four. Now later on, Dell plans to update it. But does twenty sixteen's best Linux laptop ship with a four two thousand fourteen OS? I don't think it does. Nope. I don't, I don't think so. If you went and got an IntraWare or you went and got a System76, it would ship with the absolute latest version. Also, he mentions that it ships with Thunderbolt 3 and DisplayPort and no HDMI or Ethernet. But he fails to mention the fact that the DisplayPort basically doesn't work. And really? the Thunderbolt basically doesn't work either. Wow. Yeah, it's, it's horrible. I, I, in, in all of my time with it, the DisplayPort's never worked correctly. With maybe the Here's the other problem. Here's the true problem, too, is the main display is 4K. But but when you hook it up to an external display, X X does not handle that well. You no. can't have you can't have one screen be high DPI 4K and one screen be 19 by 1080. And so unless you've got the nice 4K monitors at home, and in 14.04 specifically, in oh. Ubuntu 14.04 specifically, in some cases the DisplayPort doesn't work at all. It doesn't work at all. So the version it ships with, you have to be running a newer – you have to be running the absolute latest hardware-enabled entitlement kernel of Ubuntu 14.04 to make this work, which Dell does ship. But it, it, it literally – And then the, you're in another situation where it's like if you want to rebuild that la- – Yeah, exactly. right? Exactly. That's the problem. And, and then he goes on to say the touchpad sucks. Then he says the touchpad sucks. And then, he, and then, and then to top it all off, to top it all off, he mentions that the Windows 10 home version – Starts at $799, and this version starts at $1,099. So it's even more expensive for the similarly equipped Windows version, but yet this is the best Linux laptop of 2016. And, and last week he declared that Linux Mint was the best Linux desktop of 2016. How can the best laptop not run the best OS? That doesn't, that doesn't make sense. <laughs> and, and like Mint's got security issues. Like this is a, this is a legitimate problem. And, and here's, here's what I'm talking about because here's a better example of a headline that was also published today. 
at opensource.com who I've given a hard time mm-hmm. in the past. A Red Hat employee, Anderson over there, did his review, surprisingly just posted it today, I'm sure a total coincidence, of his Dell XPS 13. And here's the title he went with. Get ready for this one. Hands on with the Linux-ready Dell XPS 13 Developer Edition. Now, how about that? That's there's way no more reasonable. That's there's, way yeah. more. Like, there's no, like, there's there's just, there's nine day difference between these. And he goes through and he does such a better review. He talks about, he compares it to the ThinkPads. He compares oh, it wow. to, yeah. He, seems like a must read for he, anyone. He talks about trying to install Fedora 24 on there. I mean, way better. Uh, and he does talk, he does say it's a good, well-built machine. Um, and that it runs uh, Fedora and Ubuntu virtually perfectly, which is, you know, it's a good, and he says, if you're a system administrator or something like this, this is a great machine for you. And I echo that. If you, you know, and I put uh, Mint 18 with Cinnamon and I turned on high DPI mode, I'm oh, leaving nice. it on there. It's so nice. Wow. I'm, I should show it to you. It's really good. Here, I really liked it. So anyways, I really am getting sick of this. I'm, I, my, I, don't, I don't have a particular point. I don't want to make a whole thing out of this. It's just this is an ongoing problem. That I feel like Linux journalism suffers from. Yes. And it's it's just it feel it makes it feel very bottom of the barrel. And I know we don't have like the biggest journalism community out there, but it makes it also very hard to find reasonable things. So it's like that second article, that's a great deep dive, a real analysis. From the headline, you can't just walk away with a TLDR point. You know what I mean? Like you have to you have to read it to understand it. And two years from now, it would still be worthwhile. Whereas the first article it, it's kind of nothing, and you, there's just so many like, oh, it's the best of this year, maybe, kind of. Except for this, but I'm still going to call it the best exactly. for your clicks. Yeah, and of course, what they're really aiming for is those is those Google Juice search results. Oh, this is beautiful. Chris. Isn't doesn't oh, doesn't, doesn't Cinnamon look really good on the XPS there? Yes, I know. <laughs> I, I mean, I would think this was 1080p, except on a super super super, super high crisp yeah. screen, right? Yeah, everything fits. The the fonts and text look super great. Um, so you got to give Clem credit. I mean, that really is the one of the best out of the box high DPI. Once I check a box, it's so one of the best. So when is someone going to make a Linux Mint spin that just enables the kernel updates, and that's the only change? Well, you can still do it. Oh yeah, well, yeah. Totally. But yeah. So, anyways, I'm going to keep that on there for a while because I think it really works well on the. I'm XPS. excited to see what you think. All right, moving on. You may have noticed a certain lack of Popey or Wimpy this week. I secretly use. Oh, there he is. <laughs> Actually, I happen to know where they both are right now, and uh, this is the reason why I think Snap Packages are going to be the dominant universal installer. This, you don't even know it, but this week is the week that Snap Packages won. And I know that PDV just just shipped in a flat pack. I know that just happened, but th- th- what Canonical is doing right now is going to push it over the edge. So let's break this down. Let's get into what's happening as we record this very show. Canonical is holding a snappy sprint event in Germany to ship up universal snaps. Canonical announced, SoftPD and others, about an upcoming event that aims to bring different developers together and contributors from various well-known projects to work together on shaping up universal snaps. Okay, interesting. But what does that mean? Well, I happen to know what it means in practical sense is that uh, Mark Shuttleworth and others made direct invites to members of the community from all over to bring them out, and here's uh, Popey on G Plus talking about hitting the hitting out hitting the uh, the air and going out to the uh, big event. But what's really been interesting is following uh, Wimpy's posts on Google Plus. So um, Wimpy posted at 1 a.m. Just finished the first cross distro session on day two of the Snappy Sprint. Sitting in the room are representatives from Debian, Fedora, Arch Linux, OpenSUSE. Elementary and Ubuntu, 
all working together to make sure SnapView is well integrated into various distro CI systems and provides consistent experience everywhere. Um, which, look at that fruit plate right oh, there, well, that too. That looks really right? good. Then another post from Wimpy. Now this is the Snappy Sprint Community Team Dinner. These are the people in the room that are not from Ubuntu have been invited to represent their distro or project. Around this table is AppStream folks, Arch, Linux, Debian, Elementary, Fedora, OpenWRT, OpenSUSE, KDE, and, of course, him from Matei behind the camera. He got, a, he got an invite from Mark to come to make sure. Wow. And, the, and the, the reason everybody's there is what they really want is they want a consistent experience and they want just everybody kind of on the same page. So they brought people out to this to meet in person. Which is exactly when, when, the, when this happened, the Flatpak folks were like, this isn't how you do it. You have to meet in person and talk. Right. Well, look at this. And this is why I think this, isn't, this, is how, this, is, this is a way in which app images don't have the means or resources to compete. Flatpaks don't have the organization or corporate backing to compete like this. And Canonical does. And look how fast they've moved on this. They've moved from announcing it to then making it all distro agnostic to now flying out key contributors and stakeholders to this event. And Wimpy was talking about another post, how he's sitting next to Daniel from Elementary OS, and they're checking out each other's betas of the <laughs> latest OS, sharing you know, stories and whatnot. It's pretty cool to have a forum like this where people can... This is going to push it over the edge. Yeah. I mean, I really think because you have these, these gatekeepers of their particular communities or software at this event all collaborating together and talking about how to deliver software, how could Flatpaks compete with this? Well, and I think it also kind of highlights what, where where snaps really seem like they're going to be playing. Like, Flatpak seems like they've spent a lot of time thinking about a lot of the underlying issues, more related to how package management works today. There's a lot of thought about, like, when you're building up a distro and you want to use this, where snaps, it really seems like they're focused on, like, whatever you're running, you're running Linux and you want this application, we are the thing to go for. Hmm. And if they bring in all this, not all, but if they bring in a fair number of stakeholders, I think there are still some issues like the CLA, that kind of stuff, mm-hmm. right? But if they're at least, you know, if it's good terms, people are invited and it's like, you don't have to support this, but let's all make it so that everyone wants to use it. That's- well, and if there ends up being free re-implementations of the uh, back end, which appears yeah. to be super straightforward, the CLA may be less of an issue there exactly. too. Yeah. Um, I, I guess, so it's the same reason why I think uh, Steam and Valve could have only have worked with Ubuntu. They're in a, they're in a unique position where they're flexible and nimble enough to act extremely fast, and they, um, you know, apparently, you know, Mark says, let's do this, and then they just do it. This this came together very quickly. They announced it on July 5th, and now here we are on, uh, it's been going for two or three days but as we record this. That is a quick turnaround time. Yeah, so they're really, they're moving fast. And I, I just, meanwhile, the Flatpak folks just got a name. Yep. And it is interesting, too, because, I mean, as we've seen for the past few years, a bunch have been kind of the people where it's like, as much as we have a Linux platform, they're it, right? So it's nice to at least see them kind of fulfilling that role or trying to. Even if not everyone wants them to be that role, not everyone wants them to be what it is, right? But when people, when you have an app that's packaged for Linux, eight out of 10 times, it's it's packaged for Ubuntu. So if that becomes you know packaged else? for Snaps and it runs everywhere just when, already. When you said that, you know what else it made me think of is thank God they're actually doing something. Like yeah. they announced. Ubuntu for Android and Ubuntu TV and nothing happened and they didn't do anything with it. And, you know, there wasn't a position where they had a lot of leverage. Now, when you see them in a position where they have some leverage, they really do act and they're acting quickly. 
and you know who cares if it does if it if it does if you don't want to use it you don't have to Absolutely. but it's super nice that they're they're actually working with they're outreaching they're working with OpenSUSE and Arch it and others. It feels like they're they're trying to do the right thing. Anyway. Yeah, they also just recently announced Snappy Playpen, a place to test, learn, and create snaps and share best practices. Um, and it, with a big focus on desktop applications, including in here is MPV, uh, Shotwell, SMP Player, Ubuntu Clock App. Uh, YouTube DL, VLC, uh, VLC, uh, VLC developers are also at the. Uh, there's there's several other ones. Hopefully, when the guys get back, the next week We'd they'll love share to talk their, to them yeah, about that. I would really like to know how it went, uh, who they got to talk to, and if they have a sense of of where adoption is at. I know. I'm really curious to see how the representatives from the other distributions, what they're feeling, what you yeah, know. yeah, and also are do the people who go say from SUSE, um, do they become sort of outliers in their local community right. when they come back. Right. Are they traitors? Are they, do, do they different? Do they lives? have to come back and become an advocate and advocate to the other SUSE people that this is a technology that's worth adopting even though it's from the evil, evil, horrible canonical? Boy, that seems like an, an interesting position to be in. And, uh, well, and I don't really see anybody here. Okay, one last thing. We'll move off of this. Uh, <laughs> nice run. Uh, the other thing that we'll move right off this is nobody's reporting on this. Softpedia had the uh, announcement about the event taking place. Mm-hmm. But the, here is an example of Canonical, in my estimation, coming up with an idea, outreaching directly to community members, flipping the bill to, 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 to fly them out, have a venue, organize all of this. Mark Shuttleworth himself is, at least in the case of one of these that I know of, calling them up directly and saying, mm-hmm. hey, I would like you to be there. This, to me, feels very much like a company that works with the community and yet it, this kind of stuff, we are literally the only outlet reporting on it. I will say might have, people might have been happier if they had done this before they had that announcement. Right, right. Yeah. So maybe this is, a, maybe but, this is kind of a – But you would know, the interest be there if they had done it like this? That's a very good point. Yeah. I mean you know, as they say, no press is bad press. So. Well, and people – once – now that this conference, when you get there – there's a huge there, the a huge part of the conversation has already had been happened. Right. And you what can are already snap run packages? How can they be used? What are examples of software that could be packaged up as snaps? All of that's already been answered by the time they all get yep. to the sprint. So you could argue the execution. You might be right though. I think the Fedora folks would say so right. for sure. Because now you could have that press release and it'd be like, yeah, look, yeah. they did it. It's it's on the up and up. Yeah, I wonder. I wonder possibly. Uh, I think Landrash also agrees with you. It looks like so. Yeah. I, either way, I think it's really great they're doing it, and I think it's also interesting that it's the kind of things that do, there's the kind of thing that doesn't get reporting, and I think in part that might have been because Canonical didn't really outreach to much press. Yeah, right. They didn't. They didn't tell us, and they 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 told Softpedia that it was happening, but there's like they didn't invite any press to be there at the event to cover it to relay what happened, and I think that's maybe a shame because one of the things maybe to, it's. Maybe it's just like one of those, um, you know, work sprints where they're trying to get right, stuff is. done, and they yeah. don't want to do the press yet. I know. So I the, I think that's, that's exactly over, what it is. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, I know. I I know. But see, what the problem is is then that's a we just threw it over the wall, and now here it is. Yep. Instead of covering it in the when they're actually doing the nitty gritty community aspect of it, especially that like you might not even have to focus on the like the outcomes, just kind of focusing on the like cross distribution, hand reaching that kind of stuff would be really interesting. That's the story. Yeah, exactly. That's the story. We'll see what happens. I mean, you can already run it on a lot of these anyway. It may so go it's nowhere. Like, yeah, totally. <laughs> you know, the, the, the flat packs or app images may win out in the end, or or, or nothing, or just tar files with hard link libraries. That <laughs> <Yeah>. may. <laughs> but, that is the future. <laughs> but the real story 
is is that this company is calling up the, these stakeholders of these different distributions and bringing them out. That's the story that's not getting reported on, I think. And it's it, it goes it, – it would play directly against the narrative that not – the not invented here narrative that is constantly thrown in Canonical's face. They just I just don't think they're quite savvy enough because they're so busy actually trying to do it. Yes. They're not thinking about the, the, the PR spinner as uh, politics would say, the optics of how it all goes down. But good for them for doing it either way. Absolutely. Good for them. All right. I want to mention Ting real quick before we go much further into the show. That's my mobile service provider, and it's mobile that makes sense because you only pay for what you use, and there's no contract or no early termination fee. Go to linux.ting.com to get our special promo. You get $25 off a device, hey or $25 in credit if you bring a Ting device, which you might because they've got two networks, GSM and CDMA, which means there's a lot to choose from. A huge number of devices. And really, who doesn't have a device now that you could pop a SIM card into? They just had a great sale on those SIM cards too, but now you can pick them up for 9 bucks. And again, there's no contract. You activate it and you just use what you need. They have a really good dashboard to manage all of this. And you get to talk to a real human being whenever you need to. They also have one of the best deals on like a just straight, like if you need something for like notifications and messaging, like a if you want like a like an alarm system or like a, I was actually thinking before I mentioned this, like a hardware temperature monitoring device and like your data center. You want to, we have a, we have one we're thinking about building out for the garage here at the studio. This is one of the best deals yep. because it's only six dollars oh, for the line, man. and they just you can't they you cannot beat this because it's so it's only six dollars for the line, and then you just pay for the text messages that you use, and it's really easy to manage all of it. You could even put caps and say, all right, well if it goes above a thousand text messages, cut it off, and and you can use it. You can do that in their web or their app. So they just. I also just really consider that too for automated systems. They just really have one of the best deals out there for that. They have a savings calculator where you can plug all of that in there. Check out their uh, devices page for some of their great devices. I love the Nexus devices on there. And they're also constantly posting tips up on their site. Check them out. Go to linux.ting.com. A series that I've been kind of following too is the different uh, cable cutting. It's so cool how interested they are. You can tell that a lot of Ting mm-hmm. people are cord, cord cutters. cutters. They're, they're living the, uh, the online life. And uh, they also have a post on here about uh, learning what they what like what um, customer service lessons they've learned since they launched fiber internet, which is kind of an interesting. That video. is very interesting. Fiber internet, man. Woo, Ting, Ooh. Ting. I need you to bring it here. Here's what you got to do: go to linux.ting.com, try out that savings calculator. It's how how would what would you save? That's what it says right there. Click that. Click that. Put your deets in there. Boop a doop a doops. See what you would save. That's your litmus test. If you pass, like me, I save like two thousand dollars a year. I mean, every two years, I save about a thousand dollars a year. That's nice. Hey, that's a brand new best Linux laptop right Ooh. there. <laughs> yeah, it sure is. <laughs> also, businesses uh, like if you got ten to like twenty employees, something like that. Yeah, especially for those like you want someone to have a phone. They don't really need it, but you want them it's great to be for there. Family members too. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, and I really like it. Also, uh, another reason I love Ting is I have a I have an old old LG tablet that has a SIM slot in it. Oh, nice and. Every now and then, it's nice just to have another machine with a data connection. And so I have a Ting SIM in there, and I can turn it on and off right there in the drop-down menu for my notifications, and I activate it, and I get a different data connection. And $6, you just don't feel bad about $6. Mm-mm. It's a sandwich. It's, you know, it's, it's, it's great. So it's really great. Ting's a great service, a great company, backed by two cows as well. Check them out, linux.ting.com. That's where you got to go to support this show and get the discount. Big thanks to Ting for sponsoring the Unplugged program, linux.ting.com. 
So last week I talked about uh, my desperate need for a VPN to avoid an upstream proxy that not only was spying on all of my HTTP and HTTPS traffic, but also just adding unacceptable amounts of latency to my web browsing session. You're an impatient man. You need that. You need those. You know. Sure. And you Give know me my DNS now. Nothing is more frustrating, honestly, where it hits me the worst is when I'm in Google Maps and I'm in, I'm in satellite mode and I'm like moving around in the tiles and it's so slow to load each title and they load in like an old – like when you used to look at porn back in the 90s on the internet and you had to wait for the JPEGs to download, right? Just like that. Horrible. <laughs> so uh, I had to find a VPN to just essentially route around this, not even just for the privacy, although that was an element of it, but to basically get around this proxy server and see if it actually made a difference in my web speed. So we talked about this last week. And if you guys want to know more about it, uh, check it out by listening to episode 153 of the Unplugged program. So I, I, I think I'm, I'm not going to make – I'm not going to claim this is my final solution, but this – Damn, this is working well for me. This is working so damn well. The performance, way better. The ease of setup, mind-blowingly simple. And I got a couple of recommendations. Oh. So I'm going to talk about AirVPN today. I, 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 I may end up, and we'll talk more about this in a moment, doing a open VPN solution on my own server. But I'll talk about that in a moment. First, I want to talk about AirVPN. And uh, it's a VPN based on OpenVPN. And it's operated by activists and hacktivists in defense of net neutrality, privacy, and against censorship. Okay, that kind of gets my – that sort of piques my interest. A couple of other things I like about it. Uh, not, only, not, only did I, um, not only did I get a lot of good recommendations from the audience. I got people who emailed in and said, I've been using AirVPN for a while. I really think you should check them out. I got people who tweeted me and said, hey, AirVPN is great. Uh, they seem to really support Linux. They um, they also apparently accept Bitcoin for payment, which is kind of neat when you're setting up for a VPN provider and you want to really stay uh, more anonymous. They also allow you to log into their service anonymously, which is which That's, is really nice. Wow. And they support just every damn near device out there. And of course, like I said, OpenVPN they have unlimited and free um, uh, uh, transfer from what, for what I have. I have no maximum speed limit, and uh, I really I really like it. So here's one of the other things that really thought I thought was super slick. And again, I haven't shopped a lot for VPN services, so maybe this is kind of common. But I thought this was pretty neat here. Uh, you, they have an open VPN configuration generator. Oh, nice. So you tell them what OS you want. So you choose your operating system. And I'm, so I'll, I choose Linux here. And then they tell you to pick your server. And they break it down at first by region, which includes a lot of the servers in that region. And you can, they give you the capacity of the regions right here. That's what, nice. What's even nicer for me is because I'm specifically trying to find the fastest route around my proxy. I'm not really trying to hide my traffic. I'm not trying to you just pretend want a pure like I'm in Europe. To upstream. Mm-hmm. So you can actually break it down by individual servers, oh, individual wow. countries. So here's Canada, of course, Switzerland, France, United Kingdom, right here. And then uh, as I scroll down the list, you find the United States and all the different servers in the United States, and of course. For me, it was just a matter of now either picking a couple of these, which I could. So I could pick uh, this one in Miami, this one in Georgia if I wanted to, and uh, this one in Los Angeles. And it will include all of those in my OpenVPN script it's about to generate for me. I have a couple other options. I accept the terms of service, and then I simply generate it. It downloads the script for me, and then you just go into GNOME. Uh, You have to have uh, uh, OpenVPN GNOME Network Manager installed, but you just go in there and import the script. Say okay, 
you connect using Network Manager and your VPN. That is great. I was connected within 10 seconds. Wow. And there's other sites that out there that help generate open VPN configs for you. But the way they bundled this in there was really nice. The way they tie in the server status, you can pick and choose and see what the current transfer rate is for the whole server, how many users are connected. I think all of that stuff is really nice, geeky stuff. Then they also give you ways to do speed testing on those. Uh, so Air See, I was VPN. about to ask about that. Yeah. Speed testing is nice, especially if you can yes. rig up something where you're like, well, especially, you know, you've got you've got the yeah. – you're roving around all over yep. the place. Once you get connected, you come back to the AirVPN site. It's airvpn.org slash speed test, and then you can, uh, you can speed test your connection, which is just great to – so not only am I able to try out a whole bunch of different servers to figure out what region is best for me, but I actually be able to test them. And the AirVPN guys, they are – and gals – Seem like they're really straightforward folks that uh, make it easy to be anonymous if you want to, and have full fledged Linux support. And I like that they promote the fact that it's Open VPN too. They don't try to hide it as some sort of black magic. They're proud that they're using Open VPN, and that appealed to me as well. Mm-hmm. Is they're transparent with that. So that was sort of my temporary solution to see if this actually solved my problem. Before I went in and built a server that I was going to manage and be responsible for, and read a tutorial and all that stuff. I wanted to see if this actually would solve my yeah. problem. It absolutely did. It, the, the performance is better. The net the netalyzer results come back and no longer complain about proxy That's issues. Awesome. Yeah. So now the next question is: Is am I going to implement this at a network level, and am I going to host my own? So the first question, the network level one, I'm not so sure about. The cradle point that I have, and I got tweeted saying, "Hey, which model of cradle point do you have?" I can't remember at the moment. Mm-hmm. But if I dug through the settings. I don't see built-in VPN support, so I'd probably have to set up. A Linux box somewhere on this, somewhere on the edge or just which is was, in the RV is not a super great option right now, but I might eventually go there anyway, so it's a possibility. But what I'm really struggling with is 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 this the type of thing that is that is valuable enough and fragile enough that I should probably be hosting it myself? And this is the this is the age old problem that I constantly keep running right. into is do I take advantage of an easy solution that allows me a lot of flexibility. I can try testing all different locations. It gives me tools. They give me scripts. Do I go with they that They have solution? their own staff, right? And they have support if you need it. Or is it time to go spin up a droplet, install Ubuntu or, or something like that, CentOS, whatever, FreeBSD, of course, and then That's put probably o- even a one-click OpenVPN thing. Maybe so. Maybe so. And I know this is not a new, a new question, but it's one that I'm now once again – Facing, I'm just sitting here going, "Oh crap!" Now, now that I know this does fix it, what do I do next? And I know you kind of had a same similar thing this week. You've been messing around with command line accounting software for a while. Yes, I have, and that's sort of progressing into, "Well, now what do I do? Do I self-host this? Where are you at with that?" Yeah, I mean, it's the same thing. You know, it's like I have I have less time, but at the same time, I do have the ability, right? Like I know how to run a server, I know how to set up a Linux machine, so I do have the ability. And it's it's one of those. You know, where where do the trade-offs lie? lie? And, and so, like, a lot of people have used Mint uh, or other things. You need a budget is a popular one, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, you want to be able to understand your money. Good but, cash. Yeah, but there's a lot of tools out there where it's like, it really depends on, it seems like it depends on how much flexibility you need and how much you trust. Because, like, I've enjoyed Mint, but now I'm in a little more of a complicated situation where, you know, I've got some business accounts. I've got... My wife and I, we don't share our last name, so it's a little bit different. We have different accounts that aren't even shared, and I'd like to manage all of that at, at, through one, but I might have some like custom stuff. I'd also like a- access to some more of the data. Like, what if I want to kind of compute some of my own metrics on there? Mint doesn't make it that make it that easy. No, to export data or you know. So it it really 
I struggle with that too because it's like, well, I'm also very busy. I have a, I have a job doing similar things already, right? So it's like I don't have yeah, a ton yeah. of time every night right. to do exactly. administration to get good mm-hmm. deployment yeah. practices. After all, after you do this all day long, is that what you want to do when you get home? Yeah. Sometimes it is. Sometimes it is. And sometimes it's like it's totally worth it. And I mean, I love playing with I love playing with DigitalOcean. I love setting things up. I love that feeling of like, yes, I made it work and it's mine. And there are some times where you like you set it up and it just works and you you forget and, about and it. And you have the sense I you know this I can trust this. That's yep. super nice, especially when it's your accounting data. Yes, right. And so it may depend on you know how how personal is it, how how private is it, and how much you know. There are some things, and you know I've done both in the VPN case. I do pay for a VPN service provider, but I also do sometimes throw out use a DigitalOcean one. So you know maybe there's room for both. Um, no, are you? Did, should we should we not gloss over the fact that you have opted to do command line accounting? Yeah, maybe not. So tell me about this, Wes, because I thought about this in two ways. First, I thought, well, that's just freaking crazy. That's just because, you know, like I'm thinking about like how you will like when you're trying to reconcile or something like that. That just sounds crazy. But then I thought back to the to the uh, late 90s, early 2000s when I was migrating users off of DOS and I was moving them over to Windows and about a year into it, the bank that I was moving them at, they decided that it would be better and faster for the end users that if they just kept using the old DOS program, the old mainframe interface that they were using inside a window in Windows NT instead of using the GUI version because – and this is a bank – because the entering of transactions and all of that was faster in the command line version for the staff yeah. than the GUI was. And I, so I guess it's not totally crazy because I watched a whole user base switch to a GUI and then switch back to a text-based oh, solution. So, but what do you like about it? I guess I like that it's a little more I – mean, we use this phrase all the time – but like a little more Unix philosophy where you know I understand text. I work with text all the time. Text is uh, what a universal interface is what they say. And there, there is a certain amount of tedium to it, right? Like Mint lets you roll a lot of this. Like it'll just do it and it just filters it. But – like in particular, like one of the ones I use here is Ledger, right? And and you know a lot of people will talk about how tedious it is, and it can be, uh, and it kind of depends on what you want to do. You know, like Mint does a pretty good job of of classifying things. Ledger can do that too. It has some built in like a little bit of um, learning to try to classify things. There's will, it, also, will it import from your bank? So there's actually a really cool um, Python project called Auto Ledger AutoSync. Uh, which does. I've got it working with several different banks. It pulls it in. Um, you can set like how far back you want to pull it in. And I, I've actually got it down to like what I think is a pretty reasonable workflow. And it depends on what you want to do. I think at the base level, I just really appreciate like one, you know, I have a math background, but not an accounting background. So it's been kind of fun to learn a little bit more about double entry accounting and understanding how, how this works, especially as someone who wants to, you know, I want to make sure I do my finances right. I want to be up and up on that. Uh, so it's kind of helpful to be able to play with that a little bit in a safe environment where I'm not, where there's not so much going on. Like I, it's, especially like you were talking about like, you know, GNU Cache, some of these other environments, or if you've used like QuickBooks or stuff, like some of these software, they're very complicated. There's mm-hmm. a lot you can do. And, and you know, I do have a small business, but it's like, I don't, I'm not an enterprise. I don't, I don't have a ton of needs, but what I really want to do is understand where my money comes from and where it goes. And I don't even, you know, you might not even need a huge breakdown of that, but just being able to easily see like, for for different time periods, what's my how my balance? What's my cash flow? You know, so is the process for you now when you need to do that? Do you SSH into a remote box that you've set up? And that's actually that's the next part in mind. I've been running it locally. Um, I just will. Every, is it like a just a database you back up? A file? Is it file based? How does it work? 
Yes, it's file based. It's okay. just a, it's a flat text file. Nice. And you can kind of configure which files it uses. I really so, like that. Right. So it's really easy to back up. You can throw it in parse I, I, can, you can, I can worry about encryption for the file, but to have my important data in text, you know, I always envision that that bunker scenario where the the entire infrastructure has come down, and I'm tunneling in with my flashlight and my shovel, and I'm going to rescue the data off that hard drive through a cheroot right, and a boot. Exactly. And I, if I can just read that data and not have to reinstall a program to get access to the data, that's a huge win for me. So I've I've really enjoyed this autosync because it will do the job of just grabbing each little transaction, and then I can just go in and kind of correct it. And and I have it set up in a way where you will, where you can have like you have your main file of your transactions or you can even split it up like this is this month or this is this year and then you make a new file and you can kind of consolidate that to like what was the net for that you know that year at the end of it and then a lot of it's just like it provides a nice like once a weekend or you can do whatever frequency you want obviously but you know i just go through i grab it grabs like the last week of transactions from my bank accounts credit cards etc i can it provides a great opportunity for me to just go look through that make sure there's not any anomalous charges most of the time it gets a lot of it right and then i can kind of just go through and be like oh yeah well this store i know that's grocery it takes a half hour, maybe 45 minutes. And at the end, everything's accounted for. Um, you can run lots of commands. It's very flexible in terms of reporting. And then one that I've been, I'd like to, I'm playing with switching is uh, HLedger, which is a Haskell reimplementation of yeah, Ledger. Yeah, that's great. And huh? it comes with, like, it has a CLI interface. It has um, more of like a curses style interface. It has a web hmm. interface that has some graphs. <laughs> a web interface, huh? Yeah. And so one of the other things I liked is like we at work, we use a lot of Graphite or Grafana and other graphing solutions. And mm-hmm. so I really like the idea, like a huge thing for me is just understanding like this month, do I have more money coming in than going out? And and what does that look like? What is the slope of that graph? How does it change week by week? Mm-hmm. And so the fact that I can just take this, I can set up a cron job that just runs one ledger command that outputs my balance or my, you know, like my net transfers for the month, spits that into Grafana or whatever tool you want. And then you can graph it however you need it. Or you can throw it into a really Google nice. Drive document yeah. or whatever. You're able to use some of the same flexibility and tools you use for work to manage your finances, which is really kind of great. So HLedger, a simple, precise, plain text accounting. And uh, that's sort of the perfect do-it-yourself hosted solution. And I don't know where I'm at. So that seems like an obvious line. Okay, that's, that's something I'm going to self-host. Mm-hmm. A VPN, because I think here's where, I, here's where I'm leaning with my decision – if I were using the VPN solely for the purposes of hiding what I'm doing online and keeping what I want to do private or even possibly getting into another country to get access to content that's restricted right, right. in that scenario too because I don't want to violate terms of service, I think I would self-host. I think it unquestionably would be obvious I should self-host. But in this scenario, my priorities, I'd say my top three are find the fastest route around a proxy server. Yep. I I think, and the second one would probably be flexibility to choose different locations based on where I'm at in the RV. Right. So if I travel to a different state, I might need a different VPN endpoint. Mm-hmm. And then I think my third one would be ease of use. Right. I was trying to decide if that's number two, but I think the third one's ease of use. And it seems like AirVPN is the better tool for those top three requirements because they have tons of servers for me to choose from. Right. Which and Dio is great because they have a lot of things or similar companies, but not but the same gonna, number of 
If I'm going to build my own DigitalOcean droplet and run VPN, I'm probably only going to build it on one droplet. Now, you were talking about a way I could potentially bounce it around to different droplets, like the entire setup. Do you remember what that was? I mean, there's lots of neat scripts, but I think that's kind of the power of DO is if if you were going to do it, it might be nice to... Use the API to like to have like a template. Yes. Right. I think that's what it was like a mm-hmm. template the template thing, and I would ping the API and say spin spin this template up on the on the New York data center server right. because I'm closer to that server now. Exactly. And and then when I'm back on the West Coast, I'd ping the API. And but see, to me, that seems like the downside to that is what I would lose out on is any kind of small modifications I'd made between the, that time and the last time I'd done the template. Mm-hmm. And with Air VPN. I just go in there, choose my server, download the new config, and, and load it. People and, that manage that. And here's the other thing: is I what I and I've already done this. Is I have different regions now. I have a folder just called AirVPN in my mm-hmm. home directory with each different region's servers that I can just connect to really quick and try. And it doesn't require I do any other setup. I just have the file sitting there. And I just and I have them all in. Yeah. I have three of them imported right now, and I really like that. So I feel like that might be a better solution. And I feel like they're a pretty solid company. I do. I do wonder. Yeah, it does seem that you know. And there's a lot to be said about exporting the support, export, you know, all that stuff. Um, do they have other? Do they have non-open VPN? Obviously, open VPNs, great VPN. You know, that's a great question. I know I some didn't people even like look. Yeah, you you're know, right. Like, some people want that native, like In fact, IPsec um, support. iOS has mm-hmm. it. Android can do it. There's some SSH tunnel-based ones that are really slick. I right. think they're only open VPN-based. Yeah, as far as I can tell, but I might be wrong because I only. I wanted OpenVPN. Right. I mean, OpenVPN is great. There's yeah. apps for whatever platform. So it's yeah. not like it's a huge problem. That's the other thing that's really nice is I was able to set up apps on other on other uh, like uh, devices and whatnot. Look at this. They have top 10 users on here, top 10 speed and all that. So I, I really like how transparent they are with all of this because I can look at this and go, all right, well, I'll connect to this server that only that has half the users. And exactly. That's nice. That's really transparent. Of course, then again, if I rolled my own, it'd just be I'd be the only user. Yeah. So there's that too. Uh, anybody in the mumble room have thoughts on uh, VPN solutions or or my particular predicament or Wes's uh, accounting stuff before we move on? Or even been... like how do you, you know, as someone you who might line? be skilled, like you can run it yourself. How do you decide if the trade-offs, the effort is worth yeah. not impinging your freedom or whatever? That's a lot of questions. But uh, anybody has thoughts because you guys haven't you guys haven't had a chance to jump in. Uh, how, uh, Altera says, how do you describe something that runs by activists as a company? Uh, I don't know. They Maybe they're not a company. They take my money and provide a service, and they seem to be good at doing that, right. put it that way. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. So is AirVPN a company, or do you donate, or how does that It's not work? a donation. No, it's not a donation. Um, and I think they have a VAT ID, so they must be... Uh, I'm clicking on it. Oh, that takes takes me nowhere. But they do have a VAT ID, so they're and they're including uh, taxes in there. So you yeah, tell me. That's nice. You tell me. I could go to their because uh, here's here's the other thing is uh, I thought about attempting to go the whole route and totally anonymous because they allow anonymous login and they allow Bitcoin payment that I could send through yes. a Tumblr. Oh, that's and then nice. I thought about it just to really test that. But you know what? I the thing is is if I'm being completely honest with you. Security is not high on my list in this use case because my alternative is to send everything I'm doing through a proxy server that's literally interrupting my right. – that's, that's man and minimally my HTTPS connections. Yep. So – and then adding a super cookie to all my traffic. So like the, the upgrade in security for me is, is pretty – yeah. So an, a, another question that might be relevant here is like what about – do they have um, – do they let you have forwarded ports? 
Yeah, there's a couple of options in there where you can do that. It does not a lot of options, but you can also, you know, again, can you get a private IP too. That obviously, hmm, I didn't check. You're that. less anonymous in that regard. You're not sharing a server. Yeah, but that's one thing I know some people look yeah. for. Yeah, yeah. I didn't check to see if they let you do that. But one of the things in the uh, setup is uh, is the port forwarding. So I was just reading here. They say it's operated exclusively by activists, privacy data protection, and uh, security issue aware persons. Law experts with the help of of same lawyers and counts more than 80 servers with high bandwidth lines and good top hardware in 15 data centers across 16 countries and three continents. I'm picking up English is not the main language. Uh, they have a great infrastructure. They say and customer service is not and never been outsourced in order to provide high quality of support. There you go. I, uh, I'll, pl- I'll keep playing around with it. I-, I tell you what, it came from some uh, from some people I respect in our community too, and that made me feel really good too. It was, Definitely, it was recommended to me by some people that know their stuff. But I'll keep playing around with it, and then eventually I might break down and just roll my own. I- I'll tell you what the tipping point would be: is probably if I'm combining with another solution like a network wide persistent VPN, and when I'm ready to step up to like a persistent VPN that I don't fire up when I need it, that might be when I go self hosted on Do. Right now, I, I I have a very unique setup because I can't just replace my router with a PFSense box like the chat room's like, right. just do PFSense. It's easy. The issue there is, well, unless anybody – if anybody has experience with the air card line of MiFi devices and hooking that up over USB with PFSense, and that works, shit, let me know. That would be awesome. Maybe I'll just replace the cradle point with that. But uh, – then and then if I go with a persistent one, I think that's when that's where I will draw the line. Mumble Room, any other thoughts before we move on? We do have one more thing we actually gonna get to today, but you you guys have the last word. Yeah, I wanted to clarify. So you have one server and you can download certificates and then you can jump countries according to your needs, but you can be connected to one server only at a time. Uh, right. Yes. Essentially, you you could you could have multiple setups too. So you could have like your U.S. server config file and your other country config file, and then you would just have two different uh, VPN entries in Network Manager, and you would just choose whichever one you wanted for that. That sounds really cool. Really it is. Cool. It is nice. Yeah, I thought they. Uh, mm-hmm. I mean, who knows? Maybe maybe it's a it's an MI six operation for all I know. But uh, <laughs> I thought I thought I liked the way they. The way they uh, set it up and I thought it was worth checking out. But, you know, I think really one of the things that I always consider whenever I'm thinking about self-hosting versus going with somebody who's obviously an expert and passionate about it is how well do I know the subject? How prepared am I to maintain a box, its its infrastructure, its security, all of that, all of the responsibilities that come with that? And I think that's something that probably Linux Academy could help with. LinuxAcademy.com slash unplugged. Go learn the essentials and the advanced topics around Linux. So that way when you implement systems like this, you do it correctly. And it's funny too because it's really the small, small stuff. It's the little things that add up and really the key to good security is having as many of your I's dotted and your T's crossed and really understanding what you're working with, understanding the best practices. See, that's it right there. Like you really can't – like. As as two people who've like taught themselves a lot of things, like mm-hmm. you can learn how to do things, yeah. right? But it's hard to trade that experience with someone who's like, I do this day in, day out, every day, and I need systems to be secure. And they can just show you like the little mistakes that you're making, that's, the things you haven't thought of. Honestly, there's – I had a very private humble pie moment in my career because I got so far into my career being self-taught. And then I started playing the corporate game of wanting to get good reviews and promotions and started going to get training. And they, you know, of course, there was training budgets. And why aren't you using this training budget? We make this training budget available. Mm -hmm. 
okay, I'll go spend your money. And so I went to school and uh, I went and took a course by a man named Grant Williams at uh, Edmonds Community College. Shout out to Grant, uh, who sometimes listens, and uh, learned that there was lots of little tiny things that I never really – I just blew right past. I just – you, know, you haven't touched pew. it. There's so much, especially yeah. under slash Etsy. It's not that it's not that I was dumb. It's not that I couldn't figure it out or look it up. It's that I never really was presented with a particular need, and so therefore, I never quite got that aspect of it. And so, going through and doing the things that you had to do in a class really sort of opened up my eyes and and showed me that okay, there was a couple of things I've missed by, by being self taught, and now I can add these tools to my tool set. And that was extremely valuable, and it's 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 genuinely like that for just about every damn topic if you think about it. And Linux Academy covers them all, from AWS to the entire Linux stack, OpenStack, even Azure and DevOps. LinuxAcademy.com/slash/unplugged. Go check them out. Get our discount and support the show by visiting that URL. Interact with a community stack full of Jupiter Broadcasting members and take advantage of instructor mentoring whenever you need it. And why not go browse that brand new website? Even if you're not ready to sign up, linuxacademy.com slash unplugged. Go visit that and check out the new site. Thanks, Linux Academy. All right. So I, I'll, I don't want to go too far in this without bringing in the mumble room because this is sort of the segment I wanted to give them a chance to shine. However, I got to ask you. I don't think I actually know the answer to this question either. I was just trying to think if I knew what you were going to say. Do you today use the Linux desktop for idealistic reasons or for purely pragmatic, practical reasons today? And is that different than when you first tried Linux? I, I think I've kind of come full circle. Uh, you know, I grew up kind of playing with Windows. I remember trying to change the like Windows boot screen and breaking the family computer for a while, that kind of thing. And you quickly figure out like what you can and what you cannot change with Windows. And so Linux started out as just this like wonderful playground. And like I knew what open source was. And I thought it was cool because I kind of like started trying to program, but it was it didn't mean a lot. I couldn't really use it to do any. You know what I mean? Like I mean, I could do a lot, and I loved all this software. But it was like this is just fun. This and it let me like really deep dive. And I think somewhere in the middle there. I really stuck around because, I mean, at some point I started going to school and like, well, I mean, Linux was very important for that. You know, you can write a paper on just about any operating system. So I think it really, the the idol ideology, it really did, it really did sink in. Yeah. And it, you know, it made me, it made me want to try more distributions. It made me want to try to, you know, you, you can play with FreeBSD or something else like a little different ideology. But I think today... I don't think there's another platform where I could get what I need to get done. Like, there's definitely both parts. Like, both parts are very important. I think the ideology is, it's important. I think freedom is important. I think open source is important. But it's also just, I need a, I need an operating system that is malleable and where I can change things. And, like, the ideology definitely informs that. But at someday, be it, as, as long as it is free, I think I can make it work. Yeah. I, okay. All right. So let's uh, let's bounce to the mumble room, and then I'll give you my thoughts. So BC, I'll let you go first. Uh, you, uh, do you use it today for ideal, idealistic or practical reasons? And is that how you started using Linux? Yeah. The first time I installed Linux, it was like 15 years ago. Yes. Coming directly from Windows, I started just wanted to check out what exactly it is. Right now. As I use Linux full-time, I'm just much more productive with it. However, it's not just productive because I try to use as little closed software as possible. Hmm. So, in, in reality, both. 
Yeah. See, it is an interesting thing there, too, because you can kind of reach a limit where you're like, well, I want to be free. And then sometimes you hit that area where you're like, well, my operating system yeah. is free, but, but this application Windows is proprietary and I need it. Yeah, I use Windows for some things. For example, game development, I use KVM GPU pass-through, unfortunately. Um, <laughs> yeah, okay. All right. Good. And uh sounds kind of like sort of a similar uh, similar situation. Uber Panda, I want to hear your thoughts. Uh, yeah, so I started using uh, Linux um, because of uh, battery life reasons. Uh, my laptop on Windows lasted like one hour, and on, I just started using Arch Linux, and uh, it lasted for two and a half hours. So I used that. <laughs> and uh, then I understood what, uh, what was free software, that kind of thing, so it became uh, an ideology, and now I think free software is good, and Windows is also a terrible operating system, so I use Linux for both reasons. Yeah, yeah, interesting. I love it. I think that's pretty. I think that actually makes a lot of sense. Now, okay, Mister Heaven. So it sounds like you've been around the block a couple of times, including over to the uh, FreeBSD camp, and then ended up back on Linux. So is that for idealism, or is that because it just made more sense, practically speaking? Well, the reason why I went, or at least let's say, during my first bit of open source adventures, of course, I like the technical things, so I went into a you know. Adventure and benchmarking a whole bunch of file systems. I found XFS while I was on Linux, and I loved it. Thing is, my philosophy is closer to the BSD philosophy versus the Linux one. So, I actually went over to Desktop BSD and whatever that other one was, and FreeBSD, <laughs> and I went there for a while. Thing is, their XFS port wasn't up to stuff. It wasn't up to date enough. So even though I love FreeSP's philosophy of true freedom it allows you to keep secrets if you want a linux pretty much prevents you from keeping secrets if you you know regardless if you want to or not other than the lgpl so i went back to linux because of xfs because all of my storage was xfs mm, and it didn't like freebsd didn't actually you know provide what i needed so that was that's, more stable that's a practical that'd be a practical reason there yeah that is actually a practical reason even yeah. though it's slightly philosophical as yeah. well. Yeah. Oh, man, that's so interesting. All right, uh, MiniMC, uh, your practical or idealism for your initial adoption of Linux and where you're at today? So I wanted to know something new. I started with Linux SUSE 6.1. Hmm. I just wanted to see something new. Mm-hmm. And all missing stuff was really hard to replace. And then from time to time, it became a feature so now Linux changed my whole workflow. So it stripped me down to the basics, and I'm <laughs> much faster, much clearer in my workflow than I was before, I guess. Interesting. Mm. Yeah, I know. Um, <clears throat> what's been interesting <clears throat> for me just on the workflow part is I've had the opportunity now of moving a couple of different types of workflows onto Linux. started started uh, as just moving like desktop Microsoft workflow like a Office and Outlook, Basically getting that running on Linux, doing and doing interacting with Windows file shares, and that workflow was a major workflow. And I, <clears throat> it took me a while. I mean, it took me a while to make that more efficient under Linux right. to be able to justify running Microsoft applications under Linux. But I got there. I eventually got there. And then I moved. I went as a consultant. I had to move that workflow onto Linux uh, when I did IT consulting for a while, and then. Um, you know, just here at Jupiter Broadcasting, there have been so many workflows that are are sort of they start with the Mac and then 
I, I was like, I have to move this to Linux. And definitely one of the biggest ones for me was my unfilter clip editing and oh, workflow. Really? Because that just – it started out as such a Mac-centric couple of tools that I just hated using and it just was a mess. And moving that over to Linux and finding that to be and, – and being able to then use all of my, you know, my, my traditional Linux skills on, on the command line and being able to take advantage of things like Quake and be able to take advantage of things like AvidMux and being able to install codecs, the, the, you know, by just a command away. Right. It made it very practical in that case to move that workflow over there. So that workflow element and, be, and just because I have a better workflow sometimes is, a, is enough of a reason. It's, and more options in how you make that yeah. workflow, right? Um, so, Rotten, I wanted to hear your practical or idealism. Uh, well, I started uh, as a practicality thing because I was a beta tester for Windows 7 for about a year oh. before it was released. And uh, when, it was, when it came to the point where they were about to release it, they said all beta testers now had to pay for it. So, and it wasn't like, you know, you had a certain amount of time to pay for it. They stopped your Windows 7 from Oh, working. yeah. Oh, yeah, so, that's right. Yeah, so it was completely, like, just stripped away from me. And they, they gave me, I think, like a week ahead of time. Like, <laughs> notice, like, you're, you're going to lose the access to, to run the system that you've been working for free to fix bugs and, and you know, find problems that we've, we've obviously have not finished f- fixing yet. Wow. And uh, then it, to the point where I was just like, you know what, out of spite, screw it. And I was already dual booting at the time, but then I just kind of like just wiped it and went to the, to the Linux way and uh, been there the whole time. And now it's become both. Uh, I didn't really know what the ideology was at the time. Exactly. Now, right. Yeah. It's hard yeah. to pick up on so it now, first. Yeah. Yeah. So now it's, it's more like the, the ideology made me stay and the practicality made me come over. That's a good way to put it. Landrash, I wanted to hear your uh, uh, ideology versus practicality, where you started and where you ended up. Probably started in school with, uh, well, using it when I needed to for mm-hmm. course and stuff. Mm-hmm. Going over to practicality when I got used to it and basically getting the only way I could do things was with Linux because uh-huh. I needed the tools. I had the tools I needed there. I'm going to Windows for like shooting myself in the foot and doing it 10 times slower. <laughs> I think we've all been there. Yeah, and he's finding that school's pretty cool. Uh, okay, Mister Ranger, how about yourself? Yeah, I, I, I'm another one that I started out practical because uh, you know back in the late '90s, early 2000s, worked at a computer shop where we needed easy internet sharing, and IP chains was where it was at. Nice. <laughs> um, we similar to your banking story, we had a point of sale system that was crashy and the networking on it was horrible and oddly enough the perfect solution was run to run it in DOSBox. <laughs> wow. Um, and uh, even to this day, um, just a few months ago, um, uh, was uh, an officiant at my sister's wedding and I needed some random government form and I was trying to figure out how to modify this the way that I needed and Scribus was, you know, mm. oh, one nice. command line install away. So I'd say practically um you know linux is so easy to get software for and so easy to find software that does you know whatever task you need that day so for me way practical cool i I think that's an interesting thread like in what what swift 110 here is is commenting like it's interesting how i mean practical is so different like there's a lot of like enterprise cases or like you know if you're a creative type where it's less practical because the tools you need are proprietary and expensive but there's a lot of other cases where the ideology of freely available makes for these if you're if you're underprivileged if you just you don't you're out of budget for the quarter and you really have a problem that you want to get solved 
free software is there for you. Yeah, yeah, it really is. I, uh, in fact, I'm I'm going to touch on that one. I'll I'll share mine here at the end. But I I'm glad WW wants to share his. So go ahead, WW. What's yours? So I started back in Red Hat 5.1 in '96, '97. <laughs> yeah. Um, we didn't have I didn't have lunch back then. I lived <laughs> in the desert, so I was <laughs> lucky enough to have friends that were into Linux and mm. into ham radios, and you could walk into software, etc., and buy mandrake linux or whatever or if you were lucky enough you can have an independent isp and order linux online and get it and so i think i should have been on it longer i should have been on it before since windows 3.1 because i always like to get dig into the system and figure out how it's running and what it's doing and how to change it or how to move it around so for me practically it's been something that I've been striving to be uh, to be more on, even though I've been uh, someone that dual boots and uh, still uses Windows for what I really need to do. Um, it's ultimately where I hope I end up is more on Linux, and I'm not sure about the the idea ideological side. I like to be more pragmatic, so for me, it's more of a practical reason to be on Linux, and that makes more sense in the long term than being stuck on a closed system that you will never be able to open and openly use a way you believe it should mm-hmm. be used. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So long-term for me, I think it's going to be practical, but uh, maybe once I, um, I get a chance to read more into the ideological stuff, it'll be both. But for me right yeah. now, it's more of a practical reason. You know, I think what I'm what I'm really picking up, and it's, it's, it echoes mine, is you sometimes you come at it from what feels like a very practical reason, and then you get there and you discover the philosophy. So I'll tell you, you know, mine really started as a need to solve a, a limitation of, of Windows. Windows just simply at the time, Windows NT4, was not good enough for the job I right. needed it to do. And so I had to find another solution. Started very practical. I and you would I think particularly for me, if you if you watch it, if you watch the back catalog of the Linux Action Show with this in mind, you can see where I switch from a pragmatist to more of an idealist. And now I, I'm on Linux simply because I can't stand to use any other platform. I couldn't I couldn't imagine having to use uh, Windows as my daily driver. I don't know what I would do. Um, so I, you could claim that's practical, but I think really I'm here now for the idealism. And I'll tell you, if for me, it took a while for it to sink in, mostly because there were so many problems I needed to solve. And it didn't really hit me until I started thinking about it in the way that affected my own bottom line. And then, then it clicked. And, and it was really in, in the sense of my clients kept getting screwed over by companies like Microsoft and many other proprietary companies that would just – extort them for support contracts that were yep. unbelievable and that would change and drop features at, at at a moment's notice and completely leave them off on this old version that was no longer supported for a decade because the next version up completely uplifted their workflow and what i what i discovered over time both in a sense of software and hardware and in contracts is that vendor lock-in can be paralyzing for a company oh, yeah. sometimes and so that was in which the lens that I first looked at the advantages that open that a core open source infrastructure gives you the kind of 
visibility into the long-term viability or even the emergency eject lever of forking and maintaining right. it by hiring your own developer. It's a really which interesting inter- business case. For, like, you get a lot huge. of freedom there. It's huge because I can tell you, you can deploy your infrastructure on this. And worst case scenario, if they stop making this thing, you can go hire a developer and that developer can continue the thing because all of the code is completely free and open source. And for an enterprise, that's not a crazy proposition. No, if they it's already a, have developers, prob- or they can yes, hire one. Like, yes, and if it's a core piece of their business that makes them money, they they like having that flexibility. And so it's with that perspective that looking at open source, the way that it would solve that problem that I realized, oh, shit, this is the killer feature. It's It's not the great package management. It's not the stability. It's not the security. It's not the transparency. It's not all of the incredible minds that are and diverse opinions that are contributing to this. It's this fundamental open license, this GPL that is the actual killer feature of this platform. And what what it took, it took me a while to get there, but is now it is based upon that, which I look at everything else. I, I, I you you can't have a practical Linux desktop experience without the idealist without that GPL, without that idealism that led to the GPL and the GNU stack. You can't have the full practical Linux desktop with which is a, a sensible reason that we're all using it. It wouldn't exist without that. Mm-hmm. And so it was once I once I sort of made that sort of transition, that revelation, I realized, oh, I'm actually I'm actually an idealist. And when I make decisions based on that, in the long run, those always tend to be the ones that pay out. And the one when I make a decision that's not oriented towards that, it tends to screw me eventually. Exactly. And that has been has bared out in my personal life for stuff I just use myself, and it's bared out in my professional life with my clients and whatnot. And you know, it, I'm I'm very 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 proud of the fact that I can go back to almost any of my clients and any of the Linux and open source solutions that I implemented are still maintainable and supportable today. That is awesome. And I you I cannot proprietary you, solutions cannot don't work that way. Cannot do that. It's literally not possible because aging them out is part of the process and locking you into their support path because that's where they make all of their money in the enterprise yep. is part of the process. And so it took that kind of that particular doorway in which I saw it, then it really sort of lit up for me. Um, but my, it was very pragmatic. These two are, you know, like, I feel like a lot of people, it's that, that, that pragmatism, especially if you're, I feel like networking is a huge part where you're like, I yeah. want my internet gateway. And I feel like it actually, that's a more <laughs> solid foundation because if you're just in it for the idealism, then that idealism is going to last you as long until you want to watch something on Netflix or right. you're going to watch a TV show. I mean, where do you draw the line at that point? Do you, do you abandon all, all uh, proprietary lockdown media all together? Cause you that's kind that's of pretty the, hard. And maybe you do. And maybe that works for you. But to me, it seems like that eventually after a certain amount of time, unless you're freaking Richard Stallman himself, you're going to give that dam eventually is going to break. And then what do you have if all you have is the idealism? Right. If there's not the pragmatic thing that you're also grounded with, I, I, I feel like it's not quite as strong as a grip. If you can't get anything done, then what's the point? Yeah. Yeah. So it's a fascinating topic. And it's a, there's a couple. It popped up a couple of times on Reddit uh, in the last couple of days. And so we thought we'd ask it here in the show. And I'd like to hear your stories too, linuxactionshow.reddit.com. Oh, please go. We, that's yeah. a great forum. Yeah. Uh, and uh, episode 154 will have a feedback thread in there. and uh, Or you can always join us and chat with us in our mumble room. Just go over to jblive.tv. And once you get in the embedded chat room or irc.geekshed.net, pound Jupiter Broadcasting, do bang mumble. 
I know. I'm all speaking mumbo jumbo to some of you. Do bang mumble, <laughs> and then you'll get the server information. I and know. if you don't know what that means, then uh, just ask in the friendly IRC. Room. Yeah, and if you don't yeah. know what that means, well, uh, well, you know what? We make it available for keep download. watching this yeah. show. <laughs> yes, that's true. You still have some homework to do. Uh, also, thank you to our patrons over at Patreon.com/slash today. Not only do you help us stay independent and support the whole network, but you're also getting exclusive live posts of the shows, the whole live stream. Absolutely everything, even the stuff that uh, didn't make it into the Unplugged Uh-oh. release. I know. I know. So watch out, Wes. Watch out. Patreon.com slash today. Thanks, everybody, who supports us there. JupiterBroadcasting.com slash calendar is where you go to find out when this show is going to be live. Get it converted to your local time zone. We do have that virtual lug you can hang out in and join us. And JupiterBroadcasting.com slash contact is where you go to give us emails. Send them in through there. We have robots to deliver them to the correct inbox. Or even better, tweet us. I'm at Chris LAS. What about you? I'm at West Payne. Oh, check that out. How about that? All right, everybody. Thanks so much for tuning this week's episode of the Unplugged program. And we'll see you right back here next week. We go now. That was a lot of show, but we've been having some long ones recently. Some long ones. What's, I know. what's going on with your screen over there? Oh, there's just a smudge on it. Oh, I thought maybe you spilled some beer during the show because <laughs> we've been we've been haunted by that before. JBTitles.com. Thank you, Mumble Room. You guys are great. Um, you look. We had somewhat. We had such good participation in that last segment. Thank you, guys. That was. I awesome. had to write the names down out of everybody just so I could keep note of who had pinged me in the chat room with Mum. I just wrote them all down and went through them one by one. <laughs> so thank you, guys. We need some sort of software for that. We do. JB hmm. titles. Just a note. Just a note. Um, you can call me Minimac, like Mexico Minimac. Oh, oh or cool. like a, like a mini, not so mini Mac, like the Mac Mini. No, not like the Mac <laughs> Mini, like the Mini Mac. It's it's French, like little guy. Like a Mac, like a Mac Warrior. Like a Mac Warrior or All a right. Mexico, like or, Mini Mac, or a McDonald's sandwich, Mini Mac. Okay, I got it. All right. I don't like. McDonald's. <laughs> surprise, surprise. So yes, like McDonald's. <laughs> uh, idealistic Linux desktop, practical VPN package, sharing ideas and practices, Linux, pragmatic idealism. Uh, that's interesting. Uh, Jerry Titles, Jerry Titles, now y'all gotta go both. Bang suggests. Or else you'll be eliminated. What? I didn't. Nothing, no. Did you say? Just, just have the pill. Don't worry about the color of the pill. Just, <laughs> just enjoy it. Just a sugar pill, trust we me. We bought it for you. Yes, I know it burns. Just swallow. All right. Man, Unfiltered is gonna be so packed tomorrow. It's gonna be crazy. Yeah, I. it really, it really is. It really is. Matt and I have been working on it every single day. So I'm not kidding you, not exaggerating. I got off the air. I didn't even finish putting the show tags in. We didn't, we didn't, pub, the, the episode wasn't even finished editing and I was already collecting clips for the next episode. I, I don't think I was off air for 15 minutes from last week's Unfilter before I started working on tomorrow's wow. Unfilter. Yeah. 
That show is out of control. <laughs> it's, it's, it's nuts. It's nuts. I'm going to have to just go big picture on some. It's just so much to cover that it would be a three-hour show. I don't know. Right. At some point, you're going to have to pick and choose. Mm-hmm, and, they do. Mm-hmm. And then that's that's sort of dark in some ways because some of the stuff I have to choose not to talk about, I don't know. It's yeah. Right. And you're not saying it's not important. It's, yeah. Jamie Tuttle, Jamie Tuttle, Jamie Tuttle, Jamie Tuttle, Jamie Tuttle, so here's what's floating up. Linux pragmatic idealism. Oh, snap. Where's Wimpy and Poby? That's clever. <laughs> uh, idealistic Linux desktop. Rotten's rotten past. Uh-huh. Packet, practical VPN package. Uh, sharing ideas and practices. I, I do like Linux pragmatic idealism. Mm-hmm. Uh, Whoa, that was a good one. I was surprised that's my first one. I know. This has been super buzzy, so uh, bubbly. bubbly beer. I'm really surprised. The VPN of things. That's cute, WW. Uh... But you know what I'm talking about when I say, like, I think this is what's going to push Snap packages over the edge is app image and uh, flat packs and uh, what's the other one? This uh, The other Orbital one, like app thing. image. There's orbitals and what's the other one? There's one more. Oh, yeah. Um, I'm blanking. <laughs> uh, yeah, Ben, that John Stewart skit and on Stephen Colbert skit, have you seen that? Mm-hmm. That, that was this, this, crazy. That was amazing. That was so funny. I was, I literally was laughing. I don't, I don't do that at the TV. I was cackling, laughing out loud at the spit tank stuff like that. Yep. And what's yep. so great is it would, it would amazes me that it managed to be funny when there was like a thirty second build. Like you know it's coming. You know it's coming. And it but still it's happens. Still good. And you still laugh. And it's. Those two together are, they're just, they have the timing. They've inherently mapped each other's timing yep. so well. Yep. It's just, wow, man. They're like one weird person. JB Tuttles, JB Tuttles, JB Tuttles. So, should we go with Linux Pragmatic Idealism? Should we do that? I mean, people seem to like it. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I'm looking forward to some Should it be Linux? Like, should it be, there should be possessive? No. Linux is pragmatic idealism. Hmm. There's also just pragmatic idealism somewhere down there. Well, that's yeah, not I bad. In that one, but uh, you know, WWNSX beat me to it. But yeah, uh, Linux Unplugged is already Linux in the title. Right. Yeah. yeah Linux Unplugged. So you could pragmatic just go with idealism. pragmatic idealism. I like the way you guys think. <laughs> Linux community snaps together. That's oh boy. Yeah, long but more cute. Simplified. So where's the uh, shorter one? Where's that at? Uh, it's North Ranger. Pragmatic Idealism by yep. North Ranger. Yep. All right. So yeah, it's already it's already got five boats by the time I got to it. Yeah, uh, Stephen Colbert coming out er, as Colbert, uh, right? Yeah, you knew you knew they were going to have to eventually do that. Oh yeah. I mean, uh, it's just too good. He, yeah, it's it's great. It's great. Um, they even have an opening dance number and and stuff into the show. It was yeah. insane. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I like good how for he, him. He technically gave up on the pronunciation of his name because originally it was Colbert versus Colbert as right. the character in himself. Right. And he's like, nah, screw it. It's Colbert everywhere. <laughs> yeah. That's fine. I think it's been interesting to watch him sort of ease into just let, like when he first started doing the the night the Tonight Show. What's it called? It's not called the, anyway. Late Show. The Late Show. Late show yeah. When he first started doing the Late Show, I think he was very awkwardly trying to totally not right. be that character. Yep. Yep. And now, as he's been then doing it for a while, and the elections are here, he's letting more of that old character right. in, and it does seem to be playing well to the audience. Because uh, I think there's like you can have a little of that and still be a different show. Yeah, yeah. Well, and plus it's it, it, when you're on the CBS versus the Comedy Central, yeah. it's it's a totally different. You could, I mean, I think you could, I could think you could reuse a lot of that stuff, mm-hmm. and it's it's such a huge newer audience that yeah, I, I wouldn't blame them. 
Uh, all right, so I, we're go, we're gonna go with. So sorry, I'm gonna refresh the bolts here. Let's see, pragmatic idealism is almost number one now. So I think that's uh, that's rocketed way up there. So we'll go with that. We'll go with it. All right, thank you, Mr. Ranger. Thank you. And WW. Yeah, yeah. Yep. Tip my hat to him. All right, really, gentlemen. Really, thank you, everyone. Oh, you guys. You know what else? Thanks to the thank audience. You, oh my. That audience. That, uh, thanks, audience. Oh my gosh. All right, let's get out of here before we start. Hugging.